forever. Dog. Welcome to Public Intellectual. I'm your host, Jessica Crispin. We have some new bonuses for our Patreon supporters, like a exclusive weekly newsletter written by myself, and now a paper zine for the $15 a month and above subscribers. On here, I threatened a little while ago to start a paper zine with my friend Jen May, and then I guess we went ahead and did it because now we have copies of Screaming Women stacked everywhere. So go to patreon.com slash public intellectual. Your support is the only thing that keeps this thing going. So like us, give us your money, help us out. You'll get stuff in return. It's the way the world works at the moment. It's been a tumultuous couple of months in the media landscape with certain outlets closing, others laying off masses of writers, and of course, the usual threats from the president and from the right. So what does it take to start up a new publication in this era, particularly an alt-weekly? Alt-weeklies have, of course, been disappearing across the country. Um, the most iconic, The Village Voice, going not too long ago. So we talked to Brandon Soderberg, who was helping to revive the Baltimore Beat, about what alt-weeklies provide that other media outlets don't, and how to create a sustainable community in this era of free news, fake news, and all the rest of it. Well, we've seen the disappearance of the Alt-Weekly through the years, and the Village Voice disappearance uh, being maybe the most sort of uh, iconic and tragic of these uh, alt-weeklies disappearing. Um, so how does one bring one back, I guess, in this <laughs> in this hellish media climate? Um, I, I, I'm still figuring that out, I guess. Um, I think by some degree of insanity and conviction, but a major thing that for me um, has been ownership of the thing, which is kind of obvious and just trying to do it slowly and steadily. Um, briefly, um, I was editor in chief of the Baltimore city paper until its end. Um, and then uh, around that same time, we I really tried to get that paper bought and just couldn't do it because the corporate folks at Tribune trunk that owned uh, the city paper uh, just didn't want it to exist anymore clearly. And so then we, then I started with some other people. Um, my good friend and uh, uh, often co-writer Baynard Woods started trying to get a new paper started. We found some investors and got that going, which was the Baltimore beat. Um, and that launched within weeks of the other one uh, falling through. And that came from a lot of passion and some people in the community kind of noting like, Hey, there's a kind of semi-media desert in Baltimore and we need an alt weekly. Um, that paper in that form fell apart. Um, just the funding fell through for a number of reasons. And ever since then, about a year ago, I started lobbying with the editor in chief of that paper, Lisa Stone McCray to get the ownership of the beat and start it back up. How you do that for us has been just really moving slowly and carefully. Like right now, it's what we're launching is just a website. It's pretty simple. It's a two-person staff. It's basically at best a part-time job for most of us. We hope to do something bigger and we think there's a lot of room for that. But the main thing is like trying to bring it back without having a lot of major expectations that you can like uh, start this huge 
that was maybe even the mistake the first time was maybe we should have started smaller a year ago. And so we're kind of retracing some of our steps. So that's a terrible answer. I have no idea how to do it. Uh, I'm trying though. Yeah. I do think that there's this idea um, that these places naturally close because there's no audience and no money for it, which is not necessarily the case. Like a lot of these alt weeklies have been, I mean, some of them like the village voice were issues with debt, but others were issues with unionizing and others were issues with being taken over by hedge fund managers or investors who weren't seeing as much profit as they want. So they start stripping it for parts, right? Like there is this sense of like, well, the time has passed for this to be useful in our media culture, but these die unnatural deaths. Yeah. I mean, I can speak for the Baltimore city paper, um, especially, which I think at this point I can't get sued by Trump for anything. (laughs) Um, We'll see. But, um, you know, that paper was making a profit when it was closed. It just wasn't making a large enough profit. And you see that all over. And I've kind of gotten, uh, can get really mad and yelly about this sometimes. But there's this idea that like, these things just have to die, as you just said. But then you start to look at the economics and you're like, no, just like, some weirdo in a suit somewhere wants to make a 30% profit off an alt weekly. It's yeah, just like yeah. not possible. It's never been possible. And that tie, and then I think where that kind of death of the alt weekly, even death of print conversation really starts to fall apart more is what we've seen even more recently, which is websites kind of op- like major websites that make a lot of money mm-hmm. operating under the same logic of like, oh, we didn't hit our random profit margin decision for this year. So we have to fire a thousand people. Like, so it's not, so when people sometimes talk to me about the idea of like, Oh, is print dead or is the alt weekly dead? I mean, the alt weekly as a tradition, um, is a fraught tradition. I'm a big, you know, it informed a lot of things about me, but I sometimes, and I said this one is that city paper of like, you know, it's really ultimately kind of a drives from these kind of hippie papers. It's very sort of white, white dude. Guys like me run these papers and guys like me shouldn't be running things in 2019, um, which is why I'm not running the beat. But um, related to that is just when you talk about all that stuff, like you want to defend that tradition, you want to also say, hey, we could update that. But what's killing, what's messing with people with jobs at BuzzFeed is what's messing with people at it's like an alt weekly and like a very small city. It's the same thing of like not corporate ownership and all those things. So I think we, and then I think the other kind of big thing, which I hate to be this guy yelling about Facebook, but Facebook has just inhaled (laughs) everything and every ability to sell ads. And what's worse about that for me as someone who tries to not sort of just be like, ah, technology is bad or whatever is like they're what they're replacing it with what facebook is replacing it with is like a total like joke like no one's actually getting any advertising success out of facebook like if you advertise your coffee shop on facebook you might think you're they can show you're getting clicks or whatever as no it, i don't think you're getting a that's a better deal for you if it's a lot cheaper than sticking an ad in a paper and so we have this like dual thing of like corporate ownership these maniacs who think you should make 30, 30% profit on all weekly. And then this sort of larger issue of Facebook and things like that, like that we should just like nationalize Facebook or something, but that's probably not going to happen. Oh, <laughs> uh, I, I wish I, you know, I feel like Europe is going to do it before we do it somehow. Like they're going <laughs> to declare some sort of martial law, uh, in Silicon Valley. But, um, uh, so how, how did things change at the paper when Tronk took it over? Okay, so that's so I can um, so to be clear, the Baltimore City paper was previously owned by a company called Time Shamrock, which wasn't the greatest company either. Um, was a little better than Trunk in some ways, um, but in 2014, 
Tribune Trunk, Baltimore Sun Media Group bought the city paper, which was sort of exactly what is happening in other cities, what you don't want to happen. Um, and what immediately happened was, uh, you know, nothing changed very much other than we were then in this ugly trunk building and we had to talk to people in suits and it looked weird at us because we, we had tattoos or whatever, all these cliches of like slobs versus snobs stuff, which is a little motivating too. Um, but what really became clear is that they didn't care about us. And for a while, and in retrospect, I see this now, but for a while, that was kind of cool. Like, we're just up there doing whatever we wanted. Um, the sort of scheme at the time was to spend a lot of money so that when they finally were like, hey, why are you guys spending all this money? Whatever percentage they cut it by would be still pretty good. So we had this kind of weird year, year and a half where we really kind of went and pushed it. And again, by our standards, a lot of money. Like there was no flexibility for salaries in terms of like freelance and stuff. We kind of just spent more than we maybe should have. Um, and we tried to see what we could get away with. That was a really major, like I came on as a staffer right after the sale. I had worked, written for the paper for since 2007. Um, so the main thing was they just didn't care about us. And unless they really hated something we did, which was actually pretty rare, they left us alone. I mean, it would be stuff like um, we did a John Waters cover in 2014 that um, <laughs> he had that um, the book, I can't remember what it's called, the one about sort of uh, road tripping. And um, there's a whole story in that, of course, about diarrhea. And we had a picture of John Waters and there's an illustration. It had like a butt with diarrhea coming out. And they were just like, that's too far. We're kind of like, fair enough. Like, you know what I mean? Like, but like we did our first weed issue under the ownership of Tronk, which was like a whole issue. It was just like reviews of weed, writing about weed, and like just us being like, hey, let's just treat this like it's a normal thing to do because it is. Um, but what you did see was a real um stagnation of wages, just as not no one was getting very much like that we weren't really able to bring new people on unless people left. Mm -hmm. So that way they were never actually spending more money on us and the printing quality went down and just a general sense of why do you guys care so much about this thing? So we would call and be like, Oh, the printing's off or, Oh, we really want to do this thing. Is there any way to do, you know, this kind of different cover or two covers? And they would be like, why mm -hmm. just put a paper out, you know? And so that was, that sort of was the beginning of the end. And then, what started to happen with Tronk and Tribune in general was um, we got a publisher who was kind of a new publisher, who was a real weasel um, and didn't like a cover. And that got kind of spiked. I've talked about that elsewhere, but you know, it was like related to protest. And they just were like, whoa, all these uh, up in their view, upset black people on the cover with their, whoa, that's crazy, you know? And so we started to hit some of that. And then once that publisher left, we didn't have a publisher and we just totally answered to a sales guy in within trunk. And that was just the end. Like that's a disaster. He had no interest in anything other than, um, than, than the sales side of things and everything was, how do we make this easier for all of us, which really meant for him. Um, and then, and then at the same time, there started to be a lot of conversation about unionizing it with, between us. Cause we were just like, we were the only one, I think we're only a few papers within the building at least that wasn't unionized. There was some conversation about it and um, it went up and down and um, there was some conversation that, you know, about what it would do because we had this horrible situation there that's like kind of permalance situation that I was actually in for my first year and a half. Some other people were in for a while. 
So there was concerns and conversations like, well, what happens if we, if the staff unionizes this Brandon and other people that aren't even technically staff at this point, do they lose their jobs? And that's probably what would have happened. And so it was a whole conversation about that. And then we ended up finally unionizing in 2017, when it just seemed like, like we were losing people. Like after, after Karen Hooper, who was the editor in chief before me left and I got that job, they like moved me up, but weren't going to replace me. They, um, they were, I was, I really tried to argue for giving people, um, a little more money Mm -hmm. and there was like, no, but then at the same time negotiating for my own salary. And then like, I was just like, can I just give my money to them? And there's like, it doesn't work that way. So like Mm -hmm. to be transparent, which I'm, you know, I was making as when I was uh, kind of deputy editor of the paper or whatever, second in charge, I made $40,000. And then I was able to negotiate up to 65000 as editor-in-chief, which I think was less than previous editor-in-chiefs have made. But it was a, the most money I'll probably ever make in my life. <laughs> but at the same time, I was like, why can you just give me this money? Why can't we just... Can you just give me... Like, that's twenty five grand. Just give five of that to like the rest of my staff. And they're just like, oh, you're crazy. It just doesn't work that way. And I get that it doesn't work that way. But that just seemed to me where it was another thing. I was like, what, what is this whole world where you have $25,000 to give me and you don't give like, you don't have 3000 a year to give to the rest of the staff. It's ridiculous. So, um, and what happened was once the staff, which I was management, so I obviously wasn't um, part of the union, but of course it's pretty clear that I supported the union. Um, once they unionized, they shut us down. And they did that really quickly. Um, they were like in the same meeting where they said, hey, we are, you know, we accept, we, we yeah, yeah, okay, cool. You guys are unionizing. We're going right into effects bargaining. So right from that to that, which in a way was good because it saved a lot of the staff. Um, it, I think it kept us around longer. It allowed them not to be able to like sort of kill us like overnight because mm-hmm. they had to sort of negotiate. Um, but yeah, they. That's what Trunk did to us. Is they they oh, to the staff was they once we unionized, they got they ended the paper. Yeah, and they sold off the L.A. Times right as soon yes. as the L.A. Times unionized, yeah. which was also like kind of a wonderful, um, a wonderful thing to watch uh, from afar, at least probably less so if you're actually at the L.A. Times. Yeah. Um, but the insanity of just they they were announcing all these plans for new headquarters. It had no newsroom in it. It was just like fancy places to hold parties. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and the publisher was getting huge amounts of money and they were announcing layoffs. Um, yeah, it just seems really, really upside down. So the unionizing push for media um, started a couple of years ago. You know, now New York Magazine is unionizing and everything. Um, like it's pretty, pretty extensive through. Like what is the process of of trying to unionize a newsroom um so i think i mean (laughs) i was probably more i think we're all right on this i was more privy to ours than i should have been as you might imagine i think my politics are pretty clear um you know i have public i've definitely identified as like a marxist anarchist so like you know i obviously wasn't opposing our union but like um it mostly became a thing of explaining it I think, which I had some uh, behind the scenes role in and sometimes advising just because you have a group of people who just like, we just lost that grammar. And we had some, our, 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 I mean, our, our we had staffers that were really young and great, but just like they didn't exist at all. Like I always have my grandparents, my grandparents tell me all about unions, they're all steel workers. But like, we, so part of it was informing people what a union even is. And then it becomes very scary 
because of how we've all been treated in this industry and every industry where you're just like, wait, so I'm going to sit here and demand things from my boss. It's like, yeah, that's what a union does. It's sick. Right. You know? Um, so there's that. And then it was, so I think that was a part of it. And then it just was the basic process of getting enough signatures. And then I think there was some interaction with the folks at the sun, which I was not at all privy to about how their union, their side, the same, we joined the same union, which I can't remember the name of it right now. I apologize. But like, there was kind of that process of seeing how it worked and a lot of bouncing back and forth. And just for our staff, what I tried to make clear was, and I'm sure the people in the union made this clearer than I did to people was that we're taking a risk in doing this. And that in some ways for us, it was kind of the nuclear option. Um, it didn't look good. Um, it's, and I and what, and kind of going back to briefly to the whole issues with trunk, it would just be things like, um, Oh, your revenue is down, but then we wouldn't have a sales staff or like you realize that we're being sold in a package deal. So it's like an advertiser is going to advertise in 20 trunk products and one of them is city paper, which sometimes has diarrhea buttholes on the cover. So it's also like these people are just like, what? I don't even want that thing. You know, like our advertising was always more kind of, I mean, the story that we always would reference was like back in the day, like people would come on like a Monday right before deadline where, especially in the old office with like quarters, like, can I buy an ad or can I buy this? And we'd be like, yeah, here you go. And like, you could even get into the sun building with if you were trying to do that. And so they cut off all these versions of revenue. And that's when I started to really feel like, oh, wait, this is kind of just rigged against us. I think that we were kind of purchased to ultimately kill, um, which is just how these companies work. But you just started to realize there was no hope. And that's when we start. like, so once I got in the machine fully, I kind of saw it as like one, um, I think I can steer this thing either to the end well, or maybe I can make one last hope of changing it. And two, I can get inside the machine and see how this thing works so I can start something else, which a lot of us have been talking about for years. Same way we're talking about unions. We're also like, do we just try to start something else? And so the unionizing for us was, or for the staff, again, I wasn't part of it, was totally like, this is our last shot. If they aren't going to kill us now, they're going to kill us in three or four months. Um, and even this was 2017, so I'm trying to remember. I mean, there was a site a lot of my friends worked at called Wondering Sound. That was a music site that eMusic started that was pretty, had a nice run of six months or eight months. Then one day it was just gone. I started to see that. So we just like had no, and we knew we weren't protected. So it could just, you know. So basically, that was the kind of conversation was like, we're doing this, it's a risk, and everyone has to sort of be really bold. And that includes people that are young. Uh, need health insurance. It was a real serious act of solidarity on everyone's part, which is really great. But it took a little bit of discussion because it was really scary. And it was just the fact of like, look, this is going to be over. And you have, you have to all kind of be as uh, sort of uh, a team with this together, understand that if we're going to try to make this work, the best thing we can do is this. And if we do it and they kill us, they can't kill us overnight. So that's not the ideal way to do a union. And I think finally, the other examples are showing different ways to do it. But I do think there's still kind of an understanding um, or a lack of understanding that about unions of seeing them as only kind of this last ditch effort, like not this thing or like the thing you do when you feel like you're fucked. And we need to kind of move more towards all as a journalism in general towards like a world where we're like, uh, you know, we're trying to do this as like it should be like, I don't know if there aren't enough um you know, tampons in the women's bathroom. That needs to be something the union's getting behind. Like we need to think of the smallest things and the biggest things. And I think right now 
because wages are so bad and we're all so desperate, it's almost entirely a wage conversation mm-hmm. and a job stability conversation, which is important. But that was what ours is about. But ideally, the union would be doing a lot more than just like protecting people's jobs or keeping them from getting their heads chopped off. <laughs> Yeah, it seems like the two, the only two business models anybody has for print anymore is the conglomerate or the uh, tech billionaire, yeah. uh, like the Facebook child who uh, who bought New Republic for a while, or Bezos buying uh, the Washington Post. Yeah. Um, so when you're setting up the Baltimore Beat, like how do you how do you counter that in thinking about how you uh, find sustainability? Yeah. So so the first the first round was kind of deep discussions with the people who helped us start it and were funding it. And it was a really good, healthy conversation. We tried to keep it lean. And it was based on the economic projections of the city paper, um, which was making about um, about a half a million dollars a year at that point when it was closed, just to be... Sh- I don't know. I've said this a million times. I don't know about you, but if you and I ran something, we made a half a million bucks and we and we like that was after we like gave like 10 to 12 people jobs. I'd be pretty happy with yeah, that. Yeah. I wouldn't get rid of that. Um, so I, I sort of presented that and um, obtained some economic information I obviously should have had for the company and gave it and sort of passed it. It was like, hey, look, here's that could work. And the reasons it didn't work are, are complicated and some of which I don't I don't want to um I don't feel like talking about what maybe didn't go uh, right with the previous owners, but our sense was you could do it. And I think you could have done it. It just, some issues didn't work out. But so for us, this round at least has been totally like sustainability. Like it has to start with not, can we do this and make a lot of money, but can we do this at all? Can we see it as like a reasonable amount of work for say right now, me at Lisa and I basically, and a few freelancers a month and put together something that, pays us a tiny bit and can grow. And then the idea is that, so, you know, whatever, right now our only thing is Patreon, which I think we have like a little, like 1500 bucks, which isn't a whole lot, but we haven't got any, given any new content yet. So I'm happy with that. Mm -hmm. That's a real boost of confidence from readers. So for us, it's just about like, okay, we have this money. How do we put this into journalism? And that's the first step. It's not how do we pay for office or how, that's also why we didn't want to do print. Cause if somehow someone like, Costs about eighty to one hundred thousand bucks a year to print a paper, like an all, we all weekly. And if someone would give us that money, I would just have a hard time justifying going right to print, you know. Yeah. Um, but I think that ownership and moving slowly and it being hyper, like hyper local, is kind of the future um, because it just shows that you can't. We just need to stop even like sites need to stop even trying to compete with the Buzzfeeds and the Vice. And if we all, if there are more small things that sustained a few people and could grow, I think we'd be all right. So that's kind of what we're trying to do. I don't know if it's going to work. I'm not going to try to pretend it won't work, but I do know that like we have money and we spend that money on journalism and then there's more journalism in the city. And that's about as idealistic as I think about anything, <laughs> but that's kind of our view is like yeah. right now readers say, you know, 200 or 300 people say, we support you. Here's five bucks. Like, okay, cool. Like, that if if no more do, then we also have to sit there and, and, and together and be like, okay, maybe we weren't as needed as we we thought we were, and that's helpful too to know, as opposed to like weird metrics of like clicks or, you know, like some of the most highest performing stuff at City Paper, especially, would be like something we wrote that someone hated and then it made it on the way to like I don't know ArianSkynet.wordpress.com, <laughs> and you're like, oh, we're just on here because it's like Jew Run Media, and it, like there's no connection between like 
metrics and page views and like good or quality writing. I mean, there's sometimes stuff blows up and that's wonderful, but we just started like separating it from that and then building it slow and then hoping we can keep that going and, you know, build it piece by piece. Mm. So what are the, what are the media gaps in, in Baltimore specifically? I mean, I, I do remember. So the story of, uh, the man who, um, killed his wife and then blamed it on a panhandler and the just sort of, uh, uh, wide eyed, uh, uh, totally, uh, gullible belief in that, that a lot of the Baltimore media went with. Um, and then of course, you know, whatever, but, uh, but it does seem like, um, uh, despite the, that we are living in an age where there's so much information, so much noise, so much, uh, media, um, that it might be hard to figure out, okay, what are the actual gaps that are, that are being missed here? Yeah. Um, I mean, so there's, there's, I mean, it's, it's a straight, I mean, there's the, there's the sun, which is the daily, which is a perfectly fine daily paper. Um, and then there's a lot of other smaller things. Um, the Baltimore brew, which is kind of, I kind of would classify it as like city hall and, uh, based reporting. There's the Baltimore fishbowl, which kind of does a lot of things. There's be more art, which is an art, um, blog and, print quarterly print magazine they do really good work there's a real news network which is located here they do a lot of good work um but there's a weird way in which like they all have a like a niche and then you have the sun kind of touching everything and what you see at all those most of those places is that they're also uh very white um except for the brew but they're all very white and that's a problem Mm -hmm. and they're mostly you know, and we were fortunate enough to actually then like Kara Ober's the editor of Be More Art. Fern is kind of the visionary behind the brew. So it's not entirely dudes the way it might be in other places. Um, but there's a real lack of diversity, especially black voices, which mm-hmm. um was something that was really palpable to me when I got to City Paper, which was including the media. The, I mean, I had a weird thing where I was a writer. I used to, before I was at City Paper, I was I wrote for Spin. I was a contributing writer to Spin. And um I was sort of right about politics and race and the intersection of those through rap music. At a certain point, I realized that like I just should have never had that job. I just had sort of that white person awareness too late, as we all do. <laughs> um, and I felt started to feel weird about that. And then I got to the city paper and started to kind of be like, hey, this is a really white paper that was very aware. We were all very aware of that and trying to change that. And that's still been you. Know, that was it's five years ago. That's still the issue. And so one of the things that I think really does lack is like black voices. I mean, there's the Afro-American paper, which is historically black paper. Um, But I can say that a lot of people think it's pretty, it's strong, but very much for older folks and kind of middle class. There's not a lot of working class. There's not a lot of working class black voices in the city at all. And I sort of think that's what the city needs the most. And I think that something like that to bring up this insane panhandler story is kind of extreme version of it. It's just like this woman was stabbed and um, her husband was like, it was a panhandler. She stopped on a street and uh, he stabbed her and she's dead now. And that's what happened. And then we found out most more recently that he, he killed her and it was a lie. And if you understood the city in a deeper way everything about that story is wrong it's bullshit like if you look i mean i I remember where it said it happened it's like no one panhandles like it's a corner inside a neighborhood and i can i'm i'm speaking as a white person who is maybe is a little a tiny bit more aware than some of my other peers but certainly i know that a lot of uh black folks i know were definitely like that story is bullshit Mm -hmm. and it was a public safety kind of 
you know, freak out to. And that is always a lot of racism. So there's not a lot of stuff kicking back against that. So that's the the biggest gap is there's like a lack of black voices in a city that's 60% black. And what I guess the beat, what I feel like the beat can contribute is that Lisa, our editor in chief is a black woman. And this was sort of built under the idea that she runs it in the long run. I think obviously someone like me is out. Like I said, I just don't think you need guys like me spouting off any more than where we already are so i'm i'm kind of here to help and when the city paper was closing there were people reaching out to me about starting something new so i wanted to kind of use that weight or whatever that i had in the city to kind of build something that could be better and um and i just also think that in a city where it's a pretty demo it's a totally democratic city so it's ostensibly liberal we actually lack, other than real news, like any strong leftist voices. Um, so that's another problem. Like we kind of have, I mean, we're really like, really, I think Maryland is like a Dixiecrat state. I think if you start to think of it as like Dixiecrat result, it's like really does start to actually understand its politics better. It's like, yeah, we do liberal stuff, but we're really racist and we're really rich. And, you know, mm-hmm. and so I think that that's another side that, um, that maybe where Lisa and I are a good, or I think where we're a good team is like kind of, um, me trying to be as race aware as I can as a terrible white dude and Lisa checking me all the time, which is important. And then me trying to push and discuss some of that sort of leftism that I think is important to see of like seeing this stuff through class as well as race, but race first in this city. So I don't see a lot of that. So that's also what we're trying to fill. Um, and that manifests most clearly in the fact that you just don't have community voices that get much attention. Like, mm-hmm. again, like there's a lot of city hall reporting that might talk about an issue, but it's going to fill it, see it through city hall. I'd much rather talk to the people. And that's what we did at city paper. And that's what has sort of been something that we've tried to keep going. is just like actually hanging out in communities and talking to people. Yeah. I mean, I, I think one thing that sort of gets left out of diversity conversations that is, is that it shouldn't just be um, diversity of um, people who are doing the writing, but also diversity of the intended audience. Um, because with so many media companies, the the intended audience is, you know, uh, white upper class yeah. uh, professionals. Um, and so they're going to tell them stories that they want to hear, like with the panhandling story. Like people want to hear the story that these people are dangerous and then you don't talk right. to them and don't give them money. Um, rather than these are people that you can know by name and say hey to because they're in your fucking neighborhood right. and you should treat yeah. them like a person, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that that's such an important part of this. Um, and the alt-weekly, you know, uh, in particular is so uh, vital in this of just being... Um, the free thing at the coffee shop and the, the, you know, run by and intended for dirt bags, <laughs> um, yeah. I think is, I think it's really, um, you know, uh, what's missing in this sort of media landscape right now. Yeah, yeah, totally. And, and, and also I think what also your, what the existential crisis of the alt weekly that I think we kind of all saw at city paper separate from the corporate, it was the, this sort of other crisis of like, how do you continue doing these papers when they're when their tradition is, I mean, there's a real way in which if you really think about so much of just the way Trump and everything has really made some things really clear and flipped a lot of things around. Like there's something super reactionary, especially about alt weeklies when I was growing up in the nineties, like when I started reading them in middle school and they were really, but a lot of it's very reactionary and almost has a, you see in retrospect, there was a real almost like quasi 
alt-rightish quality sometimes to just being like you know hey we're these guys if you don't like it fuck you man like that was and that's a strong great attitude but it really has hit a wall and more and more you see that alt stuff a lot of alt weekly kind of classic alt weekly uh right you know the kind of voice it had was a little it doesn't hold up well we need to change that and the main way to change it is getting new pieces people that can say the same kind of stuff in different ways yeah um so that's the other thing is alt weekly that kind of needs to change um it can't it just can't continue to be if it's going to exist at all it can't continue to be what it, it can't it's the tradition it's part of it's 40 something years old it needs yeah. to change yeah the peak gen x uh form of expression yeah <laughs> <laughs> as a child of the 90s yeah i uh I, I i do have fondness for it but it's also gross um but um yeah so i wanted to talk a little bit about the layoffs that happened mm -hmm. um and how that's sort of changing the media landscape because what was it like 1500 jobs were lost in Something like, like a week yeah um so how does that um well, most so most of that happened in online media, which was supposed to be uh, the the savior of this. But it turns out that they have the same wild uh, uh, expectations of profit that um, Tronk does. <laughs> right. um, but uh, and yeah, and so it's just flooded uh, the freelance world with uh, with workers as if it wasn't hard enough to be freelance uh, as it is. Yeah. Um, so how is that changing? Like with publications relaying so heavily on freelance labor, um, which is much harder to organize, of course. Um, how does that sort of set things up for exploitation and how do we fight against that, I guess? Yeah, I mean, you kind of have these two competing, competing, I don't know, they're really, I mean, it's a story of labor forever, but, um, and I'm currently, I mean, the, the beat is not paying me much. I don't get a whole lot of money out of it. So I'm ostensibly a freelancer right now, too. So I'm kind of in this way. So I feel, feel I'm saying this about myself, but it's it's kind of just a very contemporary late capitalism version of like scabs versus it's kind of a weird. Sure, yeah. It's I mean, I don't I'm not trying to tell everyone who's freelancing they're a scab. I'm or I'm a scab, too. But there's a weird thing in which. You create an environment where you have all these people laid off that had jobs and then you put more people in the freelance pool, so more people competing for the limited amount of freelance. Meanwhile, there's people unionizing. And so I don't, it's a real, the question, I don't know how we go forward other than finding a way for freelancers to f work. There needs to be some sort of solidarity between freelancers and unionized staffers but I don't know how that manifests. I really don't like I, I it hurts my head to think about like what happens if you work at a place and they uh, cut two staff positions. And they have more freelance money. Like, are you a scab for doing that? I really don't know. And I'm not so interested in yelling scab at people, <laughs> but I, I don't know how to fix that. And um, I, I so that's I really have I'm sure, really trying to figure that out. I've thought about it because the other question I have, which is. Um, something I've thought about a lot is, and I really don't have an answer. It's totally a question is like, let's say a publication needs to decides to cut its budget for whatever reason, mostly nefarious reasons have nothing to do with actually, you know, real reasons to fire people. They fire and they fire some guy like me who's, you know, 35 white male. And so I lose my job and I lose my health insurance. And let's say that, creates a bigger freelancer pool and that actually diversifies 
the voices that get into the publication because now the publication will spend more. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure the the labor, the lefty guy in me is like, no, it's more important that someone has a stable real job. But like the kind of pragmatist or like radical pragmatist is like, maybe it's better if all these people that aren't guys like me took my money. You mm-hmm. know what I'm trying to say? Yeah. And I don't know the answer to that because there's, there's not really an answer, but that's another question. So any, so in a way the freelance, um, uh, the a guy, a guy wrote a piece for the Observer called the named Luke Ottenhoff that he spoke to me about this and kind of a sub conversation we had that just was too weird to get in the article. I understand was that of like if tomorrow I got a lot of like very successful few writers like hey guys a freelance union let's do it. Mm-hmm. What does that have to look like for me even to be like yeah I get behind that if it's if i sit there even so why not have to be people that are well off and privileged and automatically they're going to be white dudes and then if like four white guys are like freelancing let's come my immediate impulse is to be like why are they running it right yeah i don't yeah. know we don't try yeah. i know that i'm kind of ranting here i apologize but like no. i just really don't know the answer um and so that racial and racial parity gender parity all needs to be part of it for it to work and move forward and i don't know how you get to that point or like and then what's the thing is it like does a freelance union with power start to like say that if you're not part of this freelance union, you can't, you sort of start to court publications. Does that then create just another kind of tier where it's like, if you're not in the, and you know, and like um, that, that, that uh, group study hall, I know that they offer either free or significantly reduced memberships to people of color. And that's like, maybe that would be a solution somewhat to like make sure that doesn't repeat itself. Mm -hmm. Um, But all those issues are important and I'm not sure how to fix them but i think they're really important i'm not sure who's who's thinking about that i just hesitate i mean when i see all due respect anyways trying to start a publication but when i see a new publication like small fry people like me or bigger people and then i see a bunch of white faces i'm just like you guys come on like you know like so there's that too and i don't know how you i don't know how you reconcile all those things and people will accuse that of being like typical infighting or whatever but it'll be really hard for me to get behind anything that's white dude run especially yeah i mean i do feel like um i i don't want to open up this to a a wildly large uh sub conversation but um the ethics of of being a writer in this era are so weird because yeah for you know, just on the base level, you have to survive. Right. But then, uh, what boundaries are you willing to cross in order to have that? Are you willing to scab? Are you willing to, uh, uh, take a space that might be better served by someone other than a white person? Um, you know, what are, what line, especially in the, because, you know, uh, and I talk about this a lot, the sort of professionalization of writing in the sense of like, uh, self-promotion is now self-care. It's just like, guys, here's my thread on all my best things this year. Right, yeah. Like I need a lot of likes. Um, yeah, but it, the way that it's treated as like, uh, taking care of yourself in order to do that or brave. Um, yeah, the, I, I don't know. It's really hard to get your arms around how you participate in the media world as an ethical, not just consumer, but a participant. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I I think that the only thing that I can really push or how useful it is, is that there just needs to be a, a, almost an obsession. Like you need to understand that like you have already failed to create a new thing if it's 
four guys look probably just like me in a corner like hey we started this thing it's awesome yeah. like yeah. that's and if we all like operate like i mean that was kind of i mean for me again i don't i i, I don't ever try to use words like ally and stuff because i don't want to label myself as anyway not just a massive part of the <laughs> patriarchy and white supremacy because that's ultimately what i exist to do and, and but that's whether i intend to or not but like I knew that one thing that was important at City Paper, we make decisions and then became something I extended to a lot of other projects was to sit there and be like, what is this group? What does this thing we're building look like? How do we bring more people in? And if we don't, you don't just shrug your shoulders. You either don't move forward with the idea mm-hmm. or you work harder to find the people that can do it. And you often try to really make a decision to put yourself and like again i'm not it's not these are i'm trying not to i'm not, not these are not humble brags but just like a decision with like the beat was like i made the least amount of money mm-hmm. like i could swing that for a while and that was fine because i had, i already said i made a lot and that's something i talked to the staff like people at, at the beat who either came along or whatever was like look for a while i worked really hard for a decent amount of money you guys work really hard for no money mm-hmm. let's turn those tables a little bit so i think we need to do that because at least then it a, it's just basically having people like me that might discuss this stuff, put our money where our mouth is. And it is some way of using that whatever weight we can have towards something that can maybe actually make it make a change or shift it. And so that's a lot of it is like seeding power and not wanting credit and really evaluating that at every step. But in terms of freelance, I still just think it's really hard to do it on any level anymore. And so I think that some kind of unionization or something would be the way to do it. I just don't know how that works. <laughs> yeah. I, I, unless there was some sort of mass participation, uh, how would it, they would just be okay. Not you, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, and my, you know, the one publication that I write for every time I write for something, my rate changes that without them telling me, um, <laughs> and, and I find out when the check comes, and it's just this very weird experience of like, I don't even know how to talk to them about that. Like, yeah. because they will, one time I uh, aired a grievance and I just didn't get asked to do anything for yeah. six months. Right. Like, yeah. So it's really, and it'd be really easy for them to never use me again. So it's, it's this total powerlessness. Um, and the, just the extent of how many, uh, freelance writers there are now because there are so few staff positions like the organizing that would just be a fucking nightmare yeah i mean it would almost take some kind of bezos level bajillionaire who maybe isn't quite as terrible as bezos that could maybe like put the money in or something like it would still but or I also, we could just take it from them <laughs> i mean i would be totally down to storm jeff bezos's house <laughs> um or that would be the other thing is like I mean, that's my other thing is I really hesitate too, which is, again, I have a lot of, um, I have the somewhat the ability. I don't make, I mean, I have a lot of debt. I don't make any money, but I'll be okay. And so I can, I don't want to say that these decisions are easy to make. Mm-hmm. They're not. And uh, I don't have kids. I have a dog. That's the only thing I have to take care of. <laughs> um, so I'm pretty all right. But um, I still think it's that idea of like trying to move towards starting something small that's going to build or at least take care of you and a few people and if we did more of that i think we could get there because i just don't see i really hesitate to see, i mean an example of this would be like the washington city paper um the alt weekly in washington dc was bought by some very rich guy about a year ago and i knew some of the staffers there 
And um, they were really scared that they were really going to go away. Mm-hmm. And I kind of, I called them. And this was after City Paper was gone. I called them and was like, you guys should unionize. This is when they were between. They didn't know they were going to get bought. And I was like, unionize tomorrow. And um, someone there was like, well, there's this one guy that I think is going to buy us. And he has a lot of money. I think we'll be okay. And I was like, that's when you unionize. That's, that's the worst person. <laughs> yeah. Like, like when the rich liberal guy wants yeah. to give you money. See, he yeah. wants to give you money when you say, oh, by the way, we're unionizing. Yeah. And then... I understand. Like, again, I understand the tendency to be like, look, we might better keep our jobs. And I think we're going to have more money. Yeah. This is sick. Yeah. But I just think we need to get. Uh, with, uh, yeah, It's so hard to do that. But there needs to be a thing that, like you need to just or like, you know, it doesn't chance the rapper has some involvement in a Chicago publication or did I make that up or <laughs> something like that. Like, yeah, I think I read something about that. I don't, I yeah, don't know. I can't remember. You know what I mean? Like, I just yeah. am hesitant to be like, oh, yeah, these rich people like same with like Jeff Bezos or whatever. It's like, OK, well, like now you guys run. Amazon PR. Is it better that the Washington Post exists than not exist and they have to like run PR for Amazon? Probably, but I still just hate that. And like, I, yeah, so I think that's another side of it is just like not, we can't rely on rich people to help us out because rich people are rich because they're terrible. That's why they're rich always. Yeah, always. Um, yeah. And the other warning sign to start unionizing is if somebody starts referring to the business as a family, like when Jonah Peretti <laughs> yes. starts talking about how we're all a big family. I think also families should be unionized. Oh, like wives and children should unionize. <laughs> yes. Yes. Probably totally. improve conditions. Over yeah, there. that would totally be. Uh, yeah, totally. I'm down with that, too. Um, I wanted to talk a bit about your piece about Beyond Video. Oh, sure. Um, I have my DVDs. I did see those. I got excited. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, uh, I love those guys so much. And um, yeah, the, can we just talk about Beyond Video for Sure, for yeah. A um, I mean, actually, I'm kind of a nice little transition would be, you know, like there was a couple... So that story originally, I, Beyond Video is a nonprofit video store in Baltimore. It's been in the making for about six or seven years now. It's really a labor of love for those people of just like seven or eight collective members, I think at this point, that just really decided to have a physical video store back in the city. And their concerns were... Um, a community loss. We don't have a video store, but also just the problems with streaming and that kind of stuff, sure. which we could talk about for hours. But um, mainly that a lot of stuff is, I mean, my biggest example, the easiest way to say is like, okay, um, Netflix has about 5,000 movie and TV titles to mm-hmm. click through, to endlessly scroll through instead of watching anything, which is what I do yeah. every night yeah. of my life. Um, Beyond Video has 11,000 titles. Um, the only competing um, source would be Amazon Prime's video selection, about 14,000. Mm-hmm. If you've ever tried to go through that, it's a disaster. There's no curation. Yeah. There's no organization. It's just yeah. like, and every once in a while, you're just like, Clute is on here? What the <laughs> fuck? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I got, I get one of my weekly weirdo things is going to Amazon Prime, sorting by recently added and scrolling, and you'll find like, like, I wrote a piece a couple of years ago for City Paper about it, but the stuff would be like some weird uh, Pasolini movie. And then like, like there was this thing called like, don't, don't hit the dock. And it was like about do- like boat properly, like docking your boat. <laughs> and it was like an instructional film from the, you're like, what the fuck is it? There's something kind of amazing and beautiful about that, but it's a disaster. Yeah. And so anyway, um, that's what Beyond Video is. Anyway, I, they they as often take, t- happens with labors of love and uh, and nonprofit things like this. Um, it took a little longer for them to open up, and so when I pitched the piece, it was April or May to the outline, and they were like, "Yeah, let's do it." And at that point, I thought 
Beyond would be open very soon. So it sort of started as a very quick little, you know, mm-hmm. video store. Let's talk about streaming kind of piece. And it took a while for them to open. So the piece didn't get published until late January. And they opened really formally in December. And between pitching and getting accepted in April or May and the summer, I believe is when the outline lost a few staffers. And there was a conversation, exactly the conversation yeah. we're having. And yeah. the con- and I don't, so the, I, 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 look again, scabbing, I'm a scab. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah. No, I write for them too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I bring that up because I had a real kind of crisis of conscience in that moment. Then we'll get back to the video store and why it's great, <laughs> which was my, my, some, my thinking at the time was, well, I've pitched this story. I should see it. it. It's a dick move to pull a story even for a reason like that kind of, I think. And I, you know, and, um, and I, but, but, and also that that was a conversation that happened and then no one held anybody to that. Like months later, no one was like, Hey man, you're writing for the outline. Fuck you, dude. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> that didn't happen either. So, um, that's another thing is like the consistency with which we take these. I mean, that's like kind of related to what you're talking about, about like internet threading and self-care is like, we all take these bold stances on the internet and then forget about them two weeks later, sure. which is a huge problem yeah. with the internet. Um, but that's a way in which this all kind of ties together in that piece. Um, but um, that beyond, but that piece was really great because they, the beyond video folks, uh, the outline folks uh, were allowed me to write what I wanted to write. It was originally pitched as a 1500 word story and they, let me go way longer because it seemed interesting and i can appreciate that especially nowadays mm-hmm. they were really good about it um and what i really wanted to do was i was kind of trying to show another i wanted to show that it was a cool place i want to discuss these issues of streaming that i care about as kind of a movie nerd but i also wanted to show that again it was kind of a bunch of people getting together and working for six years on a thing mostly volunteering to build a thing and again there's something really idealistic about it and people yeah. They can't not everyone can do that, but they did it, and that's always worth uh, worth uh, supporting. Um, and then, sort of the other thing was just like the the similar to the myth of print is the myth that the video store is dead. Yeah, um, which is not exactly true. I mean, it's certainly not what it was. But also, when there was like something like twenty thousand video stores in the country or something, it was like completely unsustainable bubble anyway. Um, and there's a there's a chain in the Midwest and into Canada who I think it's called Family Video that currently has like a few hundred I think it has like eight hundred or so stores. There was one uh, near me in Kansas City where I lived, like yeah. just down the street. Yeah, and like and that's interesting to me. And I don't I, it's I gather that they pretty much are like a new release kind of store. They're certainly not beyond videos kind of curation, but that seemed like another way. Which was the common wisdom about what is killing what is different. I mean, Blockbuster through a lot of reasons killed the video store and Netflix in its own way killed it. But, and maybe it just wasn't going to last, but the family video is such a clear, cause the claim with the internet is that, Oh, it's so uh, convenient. No one ever wants to go to the video store. It's like, well, clearly if like whole parts of the country are still going to video store, it's not true. Yeah. Um, and that ties to print too. That's my big rant about print is always like, you can stumble upon a newspaper on the bus. If it's free, you can just take it out of a box and that's really beautiful. And a city like Baltimore, um, people, you know, I, it's a stat, it's a stat that people throw around. I can't actually, I've never been actually fact check it, but it make it parses to me that about 30% of people in the city don't have regular internet access. Um, and that includes, I think with phones, cause not everyone has a smartphone. Mm-hmm. People like me always forget that, but yeah. so that's, yeah. So that's kind of, I think print and the physical video store kind of operate in the same way where like, well, there's been this kind of 
reason to get rid of it. This war against like stuff that seems at at first you sort of think it's like sort of like a lot of things like it's like co-opted like less things and being green. And you're like, no, you just want to get rid of everything so that we don't have anything anymore. <laughs> um, and Beyond Video is totally fighting that and setting a model that I think other cities could possibly um, do. I mean, their model is, I think, if they can get, you can either pay 12 or 20 bucks a month. And I think that if they get something like 200 or more people to sign up a month, which I don't know where they are, but they seem to be doing pretty well. I mean, if you go in there on Friday, it's busy, which is yeah, kind yeah. of amazing. Yeah, They're doing pretty well and they've located a way to sustain themselves with a small amount of, um, a small amount of support and a lot of volunteer labor. And like, we can't ask for everyone to volunteer their labor like that, but if you can do it, you should do it. And they're trying to do it. Yeah. I think it's one of those things that, I mean, not to, um, uh, to belabor a metaphor or anything, but the the similarity between what the Alt Weekly provides and what a video store provides is that the it's not geared towards mass consumption. Like an Alt Weekly doesn't isn't going to report on what's going on in uh, Los Angeles. It's right. not going to do an Oscar special or whatever yeah. the fuck. Um, it's dealing with the with the local and the needs of the community. Uh, and Netflix, you know, it, they don't care about niche. They're never going to put like actual good movies on there because they don't need to because garbage works really well for them. Right. Um, so they they just, you know, they have uh, 10 ways to lose a guy endlessly. Yeah. yeah. And, <laughs> and, and, and I'd even add like just because it was one of the conversations when I did the story um, is like when I was writing it, they were the editors in a totally healthy, positive way were kind of had were asking me to like sort of critique netflix a little bit and i 100 percent agree with what you're saying but like there's a weird thing in which at the same time like roma for example oh, sure, yeah. probably wouldn't exist without netflix it's yeah. pretty i thought it was a pretty amazing movie it's pretty uh wild i don't think a lot of other people would uh fund that but we also need to not or I should speak for myself. You don't also want to do that thing where you're like, well, they did Roma, so they're great. <laughs> it's like, well, you know, you have to think of all the things they could like, you know, or yeah. like the distribution models that are being destroyed because of Netflix and that kind of stuff. So like, even when these things, same with Washington post, like they're doing good work, I guess. I actually don't, I don't even know if they, I don't read the post very I much at all. Uh, I read it when they did a, a profile of me when city paper was closed. So I read that. Um, but, um, but you know, I mean, like it's clearly a strong daily paper, and that's happening, but it's never that simple. Um, but yeah, and that Netflix is the algorithm side of it, I think, especially is damaging. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's why I hear when I was speaking to beyond video people where it's just like what it recommends to you doesn't either doesn't make any sense or it's obvious. and like, um, the only algorithms that work for me, I noticed, are like shoes and clothes. I feel like actually like the algorithms, <laughs> like when stuff is recommended to me that's like sneakers, I'm like, oh, I do actually like this fuck. But film and music and all those things really haven't worked for me. And I think that that's a really good example. And like the the all weekly too, like the thing of stumbling upon something, I think mm -hmm. is crucial to me. Like I always like the, especially here in Baltimore, I always like the way that you would like the alt weekly could feel like the city like it might have a really funny story on one page a really serious thing or some wild photo or you know and the video store has the same thing of like the juxtaposition of titles and the way you can browse it you know at beyond video there's a whole room that's kind of divided by director mm -hmm. um which in one way is a very like clear-cut way to divide but also when you're in this room and there's like you know i don't know Louis Mal, miyazaki uh i don't know just, you know whatever you know like that's kind of interesting to see this next yeah, to each yeah. other 
Yeah. And also they're not terrible about female directors, which is so rare to find, Yeah, uh, especially since it all seems to be run by, by guys. It's only guys behind the counter when I go there, but uh <laughs> Yeah, I think there's. Yeah, I think it's almost the most of the collective. It's like uh, Liz Donato, who's a great artist as well as involved. But I actually haven't seen her there when I've been there. I think so. Maybe the dudes are being solid allies and they're doing all the labor for once. <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, yeah. But like, no, it's been yeah. very mindful of like putting um, women directors and black directors in that mm-hmm. on that wall uh, in a way that seems actively inclusive. And I know Eric Hatch, who's involved fairly well and he was a really he was kind of the main focus of my piece we spent a ton of time together over the past six months with that and he seems to be really mindful of that and i can really appreciate that and that's mm-hmm. another thing i mean um i noticed like hulu for black history month i can't they had it it wasn't even well even that's what it was called but they basically just were like oh here's our black movies i don't know it's just like you cl- yeah, anything that's like coded yeah, like sort yeah. of yeah and that's like that's what these and that's all these that's all of that these kind of streaming sites are ever going to do. We mm-hmm. can't expect them to do more than that. And they might mm-hmm. also, you know, fund some great films that are by women and people of color. And that's good too, but it's just a different kind of thing. And like, it's actually a pretty easy, but ultimately radical act to just be like, again, like I said, be like, like, like Louis Ma, Lucretia Martel, Miyazaki. That's probably a wall there. That's yeah, pretty yeah. sick. Yeah, that is really good. Yeah. I, I, the only thing is that Seconds by Frankenheimer is always gone. And I've been... Anyway. Um, yeah. So, okay. To sort of wrap up the conversation, um, what are the kind of first things that you guys are going to be doing at the at the beat? Okay. So, um, the first kind of... Our plan is basically to do one, what we kind of consider equivalent of a cover story or a more deeply reported story once a week and then kind of some quick hit news things and service journalism things. The first piece that we have up um, is about a group called Out for Justice, which is a nonprofit advocacy group for folks that are um, coming out of jail or in jail. Um, and I know some people involved in that um, through an organization called 300 Gangsters, which is a group of um uh, current or former Bloods who were kind of part of what was a, there was kind of a well-publicized gang truce during the uprising. Those guys were a part of that and they were, took a lot of their, um, how they built themselves was informed by Out for Justice, which is basically like an ex-offender centered and run group. The people involved are ex-offenders. They have meetings where people vote. And so we also see for us locating things that are maybe operating similar to us, not just to promote people that are similar minded at all, but and out for justice is doing way better work than a journalism group could ever do. I mean, they got banned the box, got, uh, ex, uh, got felons the right to vote, those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. But, um, Lisa Stone McCray, the editor in chief, she hung out with Nicole Hansen, who's the head of that group. And they wrote a piece about them and their current move is towards, um, getting more, uh, support for women when they're released, which, um, again, I hadn't, wasn't aware of this. And a lot of the work I do in that world is often talking to, uh, black men who are ex offenders. That's the, mo- that's where my reporting has led me because I'm a dude, I think. Um, but just speaking about like, you know, you're, um, out of, you have the, 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 you're out of jail and that's hard. And then the additional concerns when you're a woman. And so, um, out for justice is advocating at Annapolis, the session for some more, like uh, some women support groups. And there's like kind of these prison release groups in Baltimore and in the state, but there's very few, there's almost none, I think that are women centered. So that's the first piece. Um, the next piece will be, there's a, um, small kind of music safe space venue 
called the Undercroft that's in Remington, that um, which is a neighborhood in Baltimore, not far from Beyond Video, actually, which is a kind of inspiring part over there of the city, I think. And the Undercroft is kind of a um, music venue in the bo- bottom floor of a church, but kind of feels and looks like a music venue and is focusing on like queer and trans artists and is a safe space and is probably the only entirely underage venue in the city. So that's another like kind of lack of inclusivity we have in this city. And so that'll be the second kind of cover story. And that's by um, a writer named Jacob Took, who is a um, Johns Hopkins student that I've met over the past year that I thought would be really good for the piece. We're also trying to reach out to younger writers and do that as well. Um, And then those are our two first big kind of cover stories. And then um, we'll be doing some more kind of quick hit kind of stuff. Um, The, uh, I've just, I'm writing a book about the gun trace task force, which is this notoriously corrupt police force. And a few days ago, um, a, another guy got indicted on that for planning a BB gun on a guy that another cop ran over. So Jeez. it's an endlessly terrible story. Um, so I'll be continuing my coverage of that, which has kind of become my obsession over the past year with the book, me and Baynard are writing a book about it. Um, but yeah. And then just, you know, general commentary. I mean, um, Dr. Lawrence Brown of Morgan State has an op-ed that he's working on about there is a Harvard County um, politician who called Prince George's County the N-word district. And uh, he, uh, Dr. Brown is an amazing, if you've ever heard, especially in Baltimore, sort of popularized this idea of the white L, which is the middle of the city where the white folks live and then the black folks live on the east and west side. And he kind of re retro reimagined that as the white L and the black butterfly. And that's become a kind of really common a popular phrase, a way to understand the city. So Dr. Brown kind of talks about those things and what's it mean for a white person to assume Prince George's County, which is like the most wealthy county in the country, maybe, mm-hmm. or something like that. Something it's really it has a lot of money out. So I won't yeah. But anyway, he there's an op-ed about that. And then just general, we'll keep up on the news and things like that. But those are our two first big cover stories, this small arts venue and this uh ex-felon advocacy group. And that's kind of I think what we want to focus on. And there are things that aren't gonna be covered. Like that's kind of an easy thing when it's yeah. two of us. It's just like what hasn't been talked about, that's kind of the best we can do with a few people is fill that void. Like it actually is, it's the saner way to run a small newsroom than to just be like, well, what isn't being covered that needs to be covered? We need to go do that. And that's yeah. kind of what we've been doing. Yeah. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Dog. Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram, at Forever Dog Team, and liking our page on Facebook.